Anyway, to our first guest. Um, she's one of my favourite writers, one of my favourite people, Jojo Moy. She's lovely. Yay! There she is, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, she has launched her last two books here at the Salon, and both have become bestsellers, obviously because she made that wise choice. Um, and she's here tonight to read from her new novel, which I think is her 10th? 10th? She can't even count herself. 10th. The Girl You Left Behind. Please welcome Jojo Moy. <laughs> is uh, a kind of it's about as far removed from me before you as um, as I could get it's an epic scale book about two um, women at each end of the century it's about a painting uh, which is of the woman in the early part of the century and the court case that it becomes the subject of in the later part of the century it's about making bad decisions for the right reasons and the early part of the book is set in occupied France in 1916. And I'm so rubbish that I didn't even realise that France was occupied in 1916. I just thought it was the kind of LOLO period of um, uh, the Second World War. Um, and then the research that I did on this period fascinated me so much because there was this whole swathe of France that was living um, cheek by jowl with Germans who were able to walk into your house and requisition anything that they wanted um, you had to feed them they got the best of everything and so there were lots of people put in a very awkward no, not awkward that makes it sound really lame that's like something my little sister said um, <laughs> it's a um, very difficult position and the tensions that it created within small towns depending on who was considered to be a favorite of the german or who was seen to be collaborating is something that fascinates me um, and the reading i'm going to do uh, Sophie, our heroine, um, is uh, the part um, owner of a hotel in a small town in northern France. She and her sister are trying to keep it going during a German occupation, and this is not necessarily going down well. Um, the, sorry, the decision of the Germans to come and eat in this hotel is not going down well with the local villagers. You should have said no. Madame Durant poked a bony finger into my shoulder. I jumped. She wore a white frilled bonnet and a faded blue crocheted cap was pinned around her shoulders. Those who complained about lack of news now that we were not allowed newspapers had evidently never crossed my neighbour's path. What? Feeding the Germans? You should have said no. It was a freezing morning and I had wrapped my scarf high around my face. I tugged it down to respond to her. I should have said no. And you will say no when they decide to occupy your house, will you, madame? You and your sister are younger than I am. You have the strength to fight them. Unfortunately, I lack the firearms of a battalion. What do you suggest I do? Barricade us all in? Throw cups and saucers at them? She continued to berate me as I opened the door for her. The bakery no longer smelt like a bakery. It was still warm inside, but the scent of baguettes and croissants had long since disappeared. This small fact made me sad every time I crossed the threshold. I swear I do not know what this country is coming to. If your father could have seen the Germans in his hotel... Madame Louvier had evidently been well briefed. She shook her head in disapproval as I approached the counter. He would have done exactly the same thing, madame. Monsieur Armand, the baker, shushed them. You cannot criticise Madame Lefebvre. We are all their puppets now, madame. Madame Durand, do you criticise me for baking their bread? I just think it's unpatriotic to do their bidding, she said. Yeah, easy to say when you're not the one facing a bullet. 
So, more of them are coming here, more of them pushing their way into our storerooms, eating our food, stealing our animals. I swear I do not know how we will survive this winter. The baker smiled, as we always have, Madame Durant, with stoicism and good humour, praying that our lord, if not our brave boys, will give the Bosch a royal kick up the backside. Monsieur Armand winked at me. Now, ladies, what would you like? We have week-old bread, sorry, we have week-old black bread, five-day-old black bread, and some black bread of indeterminate age, guaranteed free of weevils. Oh, there are days I would consider a weevil a welcome hors d'oeuvre, Madame Louvier said mournfully. Then I will save a jam jar full for you, my dear. Believe me, there are many days in which we receive generous helpings in our flour. Weevil cake, weevil pie, weevil profiteroles. Thanks to German generosity, we can supply them all. We tried to laugh. It was impossible not to. Monsieur Armand managed to raise a smile even on the direst of days. Madame Louvier took her bread and put it into her basket with distaste. Monsieur Armand took no offence. He saw that expression a hundred times a day. The bread was black, square and sticky. It gave off a musty smell as if it were mouldering from the moment it left the oven. It was so solid that the old women frequently had to request the help of the young simply to cut it. Did you hear, she said, tucking her coat around her, that they have renamed all the streets in Le Nouvion? Renamed the streets? German names for French ones. Monsieur Dinon got word from his son. You know what they call Avenue de la Gare? We all shook our heads. Madame Louvier closed her eyes as if to make sure she'd got it right. Bahnhofstrasse, she said finally. Bahnhof what? Can you believe it? They will not be renaming my shop, Monsieur Armand harumphed. I'll be renaming their backsides, brought this and brought that. This is a boulangerie in Rue des Bastides. Always has been, always will. Bahnhof, what's it ridiculous? But this is terrible, Madame Durant was panic-stricken. I don't speak any German. We all stared at her. Well, how am I supposed to find my way round my own town if I can't tell the street names? <laughs> we were so busy laughing that for a moment we did not notice the door open. But then the shop fell abruptly silent. I turned to see Lilian Bethune walk in, her head up but failing to meet a single person's eye. Her face was fuller than most, her clear skin rouged and powdered. She uttered a general bonjour and reached into her bag. Two loaves, please. She smelt of expensive scent and her hair was swept up in curls. In a town where most women were too exhausted or too empty-handed to do anything but the minimum of personal grooming, she stood out like a glittering jewel. But it was her coat that drew my eye. I could not stop staring at it. It was jet black, made of the finest astrakhan lambskin and thick as a fur rug. It held the soft sheen of something new and expensive, and the collar rose around her face as if her long neck were emerging from black treacle. I saw the older women register it, their expressions hardening as their gaze travelled down its length. One for you, one for your German, Madame Durant muttered. I said two loaves, please. She turned to Madame Durant. One for me, one for my daughter. For once, Monsieur Armand did not smile. He reached under the counter, his eyes never leaving her face, and went with his two meaty fists, he slammed two loaves onto its surface. He did not wrap them. Lillian held out a note, but he didn't take it from her hand. He waited the few seconds it took her to place it on the counter, and then he picked it up gingerly as if it might infect him. He reached into his till and, and threw two coins down in change, even as she held out her hand. She looked at him and then at the counter where the coins lay. Keep them, she said, and with a furious glance at us, she snatched up the bread and swept out of the shop. How she has the nerve. Madame Durant was never happier than when she was outraged by somebody else's behaviour. Luckily for her, Lillian Bethune had granted her ample opportunity to exercise her fury over the past few months. 
I suppose she has to eat, like everyone else, I said. Every night she goes to the Fourier farm. Every night you see her cross the town, scuttling like a thief. She has two new coats, Madame Louvier said. The other one is green, a brand new green wool coat from Paris. And shoes of kid leather. Of course, she dare not wear them out in the day. She would get lynched. Oh, she won't, that one. Not with the Germans looking out for her. Still, when they leave, it'll be another story, eh? I wouldn't want to be in her shoes, kid leather or not. Oh, I do hate to see her strutting about, rubbing her good fortune in everybody's faces. Who does she think she is? Monsieur Armand watched the young woman crossing the square. He smiled. I wouldn't worry, ladies. Not everything goes her way. We looked at him. Can you keep a secret? I don't know why he bothered asking. Those two old women could barely stay silent for ten seconds at a time. What? Let's just say some of us make sure Miss Fancy Pants gets special treatment she wasn't expecting. I don't understand. Her loaves live under the counter by themselves. They contain some special ingredients. Ingredients that I promise go into none of my other loaves. The old women's eyes widened. I dared not ask what the baker meant, but the glint in his eyes suggested several possibilities, none of which I wanted to dwell upon. (gasps) No! Monsieur Armand! They were scandalised, but they began to cackle. I felt sick then. I didn't like Lillian Bethune or what she was doing, but this revolted me. I've got to go. Helen needs... I reached for my bread. Their laughter still ringing in my ears. I ran for the relative safety of the hotel. Nasty shit loaf. That's a horrible kind of horrible kind of. Just going to put it out there. Um, so the, the 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 novel has um, two two um, girls who've been left behind, and that we we just met the first one there, Sophie, um, and she's been left behind by her hus- husband. Who? Yeah, he's her husband. An he, he's an artist, and he's gone to fight at the front, and it's her desperate battle to keep her family together and to keep. Um, him safe because she discovers part way through that um, something terrible has happened to him and she has to decide whether to barter something to win well, his freedom. Which is the picture? Initially. Initially. <laughs> something else afterwards. Um, and so she, she has been left behind and the other person who's been left behind is... Um, is Liv and she's a woman who lives in the modern day. She was widowed four years previously. Um, she's stuck. She can't move on. And she is the owner of the portrait of Sophie that her husband painted. So that's the connection between That's the, the connection. Yeah. And what we don't know is what happens to Sophie um, at a key point in the book and the uh, Liv's fight to retain ownership of the book when she disco- uh, of the painting when she discovers that um, it's the subject of a, a, a court restitution court case. So I didn't um, know that there were restitution court cases from the, I mean, stupidly, from the First World War as well as, as, well as from the, the Second They're much World more War. rare than the Second because World Les War. Because less was stolen. Yes, or... and also because it's much harder to find records. With, with, uh, I mean, for those of you who are kind of not conscious of it, there, there was a huge systematic theft of art during the Second World War. Um, it was um, not just looted, but uh, properly targeted and a vast majority of it ended up in a big warehouse near Dachau. Um, and this is partly what inspired the book. Was When I was an arts correspondent at The Independent many, many years ago, I used to cover some of the early restitution cases because families were discovering 50, 60 years on 
that their portraits or their paintings still existed somewhere. But the thing that happened, which fascinated me, was that it's not always clear-cut. You would think if somebody had their artwork stolen that it should be returned to them in 50 years' time. Mm. But often the portrait had been bought in good... or the painting had been bought in good faith. It might have been owned by a family for 30 years. It might have huge emotional significance for them. Mm. And the family claiming it might not have even known it was missing and then might see dollar signs because a lot of these... Uh, pound signs because a lot of these paintings are worth an awful lot of money. And it has become a huge industry as well because lawyers make a huge amount of money tracking them down and, and returning them. That's one of the characters in the, in the novel. Do you want to tell us about, about him? Yes. Well, I, I, the thing about writing love stories is what's always fascinating is what keeps people apart, not what's bring, what brings them together. And it's always harder in the modern day because there's nothing stopping people hooking up, basically. You know, it's just a booty call. And, um, it's called Grinder, Chocha. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> oh, shame. Um, and um, so, thank you, Damien. Uh, so basically, I was I was trying to work out what would possibly keep my modern day lovers apart, and then I thought, well, if they're on opposite sides of a court case, yes. and so um, Paul, who's the the lead in the modern day, is a man who is works for an agency. Um, given the uh, job of, of finding a painting. And those agencies are real. They, they are they, real, Are yeah. they the kind of, sort of, I guess, like ambulance chasers in that sense? They look for cases. Um, I mean, it seems to me from, from the novel that they are not so much about writing wrongs as about, as about making I money. think there's a huge variety. I mean, yeah. I think that in the early days, it was very much about writing a wrong. And in fact, there's been legislation to try and right the wrongs because obviously there were huge wrongs done. Of course. But as with all things legal, there are certainly people who like to jump on a bandwagon and um, there's a lot of money to be made. And in some of these cases in the States, for example, um, when a painting has finally been recovered after a kind of five-year court case the amount owed to the lawyers has been as great as the value of the painting. So it becomes a worthless task, except it becomes of great sort of symbolic value. So, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because in, 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 in this case, you know, you, you, it's like you say, you think it would be clear-cut, but it's not. And I found myself wavering about, about my loyalties, and we won't reveal w what happens um, at the end. Very exciting, very exciting. Um, so, so when you were writing this book, um, you know, we, we were chatting and you said... It's just not working, and I've deleted 70,000 words. I did, right. I did. So, I mean, the writers in the room are just like, oh. Um, well, you know, I've not by accident, presumably. No, but no, actually, no, no, I, no. Yeah. I, this is, I mean, It's a big book. It's 140,000 words, and I finished it, and my agent's here. She, she's, she was a big part of this. I handed the book over, and then... I knew, I knew. I think, you know, all of you who are writers, you have that gut feeling that just something's not quite working and I spoke to Sheila my agent and she she wasn't lukewarm because she's never lukewarm about anything but um she there was just something it's like when your mum speaks to you and there's a mm. long silence you know <laughs> <laughs> you just know you just know and I said I'm gonna get rid of half the book and she just went okay oh, <laughs> she, shit. She that's so me. not what you want to hear is it? it's like no you could at least put up a fight no don't no, don't no. get rid of those 70,000 words no just but, get rid of but them but the worst thing was because I thought I'd delivered on time yeah. I had committed myself to all sorts of other things for the rest of the year including spending some time with my children which I, which yeah. I virtually never do so I then had this nightmarish kind of five months of trying to make up 70,000 words which can I just ask which bit of the book did you cut the 70,000 words from was it the past or the present well if I tell you that then everyone 
someone's going to read it and go, oh, yeah, that was shit. I can understand. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, well, it was half the book. I'm right. going to leave it to you to decide. Okay, to decide um, which. Yeah. To, decide to decide which, which, which I should have jettisoned, yeah. Okay. Um, but I did, I had a, a couple of days after I did it. And I have to say, I didn't actually delete them because I'm not that brave. I, I shoved them into a folder called may use in future or something <laughs> really wimpy. But, of course, when you stuff writing in that folder, you never use it. Never. It's, it's always rubbish. Um, and it was the right decision. It was the right decision. No, it, and, um, obviously. Yeah, but it was a tough... I, I then had to start getting up at 6 o'clock every morning to make up the hours, which was... Which is the reason I look like this. Oh, stop. <laughs> uh, you, you were saying about, um, about being um, arts correspondent at the ND and sort of, you know covering these early restitution mm. cases. Is that where the inspiration came from? And did it happen, you know, when you were at the paper and you've just been sitting on the idea and it came back to you, or was there some other kind of trigger for it? Well, there, was a, there were a few triggers. I find that when you write a book, it's never just one thing. There's always a couple of things that just start to gel together in your mind. There was some writer who had this great expression that, you know, um, ideas stuck up like planes at Heathrow waiting to land, and sometimes they they kind of tie in together. And with this one, it was a couple of things. It was, it was that, that issue of the greyness mm. of those decisions, of those court cases, always fascinated me. Um, but it was also... I read an amazing newspaper report about... A, um, it was a restitution case, and it was set in the Second World War, and it was about this um, American war reporter, one of these kind of gold gals from the 1940s, and she'd gone out to Dachau to report on the liberation of Dachau, and she'd been um, pulled to one side by a general and said, you know, you can't go in there. And she was like, yes, I can. You know, if a man yeah. can do it, I can do it. He said, no, 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 we need you to be somewhere else. We found this warehouse full of artwork, and we need all our men in Dachau, and we need somebody to guard this warehouse. This warehouse contained something like two-thirds of all the looted artwork of Europe. It was the Fuhrer's private store. And... And at the end of the... And she was furious because she, she knew the real story was going on sure. in the liberation of Dachau. And so she'd done this thing kind of with a terribly bad grace and a couple of marines to help her. And then at the end of the day, this general had come back kind of slightly ashen-faced, said, thank you so much for doing that. Do you want to take something to say thank you? <laughs> so she did. So, um, she did? Yeah, so she took a little cranner. Oh, my um, God. And then, but oddly, you know, I think she knew that this wasn't quite right because she didn't say anything to anybody about it. This little cherub or angel just sat on her wall. Oh, no, she, she didn't say anything to anybody about didn't it. You know, anybody. her looted, doubly yeah, looted. Her doubly art. looted art. And then um, I think she died and her children decided to get rid of it. And, of course, it was flagged up as one of these missing works mm. of art. And it became the subject of a huge restitution case and of course in the end you know they had to give it back but it was just the idea of this kind of really grumpy female reporter sitting on a jeep somewhere kind of knowing the story was elsewhere but then being told you know there might be some picassos in it go go have a painting you know thanks for that and it was just like, uh, it just fascinated me and i could i could see it and i think it's sometimes you can see scenes in your head before yeah. you start and I, I could see that one I'm going to take questions um, in, in a second. Um, <laughs> all right, I'll take, I'll, take, I'll take them now. That was just cruel, wasn't it? Okay. It was. Go for it, Sylvia. Hello. Um, yes. My question to you is, um, what exactly happened with Emma Freud, the Curry, the sightings incident? This might be a question. For, sounds like a question for afterwards. Okay. Is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a question yeah, for afterwards. Let's, it's, let's, it's a long question. story. Um, Naomi. What is it that 
Yes, what, what was it about that particular story that made you think I can get not just a story but a whole novel out of? I think, I think it's if I see it. It's, it's, it's like something actually ignites in your head and you can, I could picture this woman, I could always, already see her as a character um, and I could build a, an issue around it. I, I kind of like books that have kind of questions at the heart of them. Yes. Um, and, you know... The fact is, if someone offered you the pick of a warehouse in a time of kind of great turmoil, um, when nothing, everything was topsy-turvy, there were no absolutes, you, you know, God knows what was going on down the road, what would you do? Would you, would you take the painting? You, you might do, or you might not. I, I, obviously, I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm, say, I'm going to totally not say that, anything. There, there, was, there, was a, <laughs> there was a question there, and there was a picture, and, and I... For me, when I write, I have to be able to see stuff. I, see, I have to see it visually, and I have to roll, run whole scenes through in my head visually before I can make them come alive. And if they don't work visually, I, I tend, they tend not to work on paper. So it's, very, it's very interesting, the, the connection between yours and Naomi's book to do with contested physical territory and mm. collaboration and living in occupied space. We'll talk about, talk about that more in a minute. So I'm aware that I'm not looking over here. Hello. can't see who you are there. Hi. Hi. How did you kind of get into the voice of 1960? I mean, we've, kind of, we've touched on this before, but tell us more about the research that, that, that you yeah, do. Yeah, well, I always worry about this for good reasons, but um, there's a couple of things that I do every time now, one of which is I go to the British Newspaper Library, or what used to be the British Newspaper well, Library. Collins, yeah, yeah. Uh, it used to be at Collindale. And I plaster my... Basically, the, there is a resource where you can go and you can get any newspaper from pretty much the last 300, you know, 200 years... And, and photocopy pages from it. And every book that I write, I, I pull out pages from that time because what it does is it gives you an idea of the names and the preoccupations and the language, and I plaster my office walls with it. And, you know, if I lose inspiration, I just basically walk around because it is a different way of being. Um, and with this book, I read a book... Um, I'm not sure if it's self-published, but it's, it's a very good book called The Long Silence. Uh, and it... The First World War, the occupation of France in the First World War is largely unrecorded because so much of it was blown to smithereens that not many um, records, personal records remained. But there's an amazing woman called Helen MacPhail who has documented people's diaries and German records and French records from that time. And, uh, and she's, it's, it's not the easiest of reads. It's very much a factual collection of documents but it is fascinating and the book opens with a scene where um the germans raid the hotel because they've been told that there is a pig there and um i won't tell you what happens in the opening scene but it's about hiding this piglet from the germans and where they hide it <laughs> sounds terrible um, <laughs> but this was inspired by a story i read in this book about um the fact that the germans had heard that there was a full-grown pig in a house and had raided it and the French had got wind of the fact that they were coming, and they dressed the full-grown pig up in a bonnet and a nightgown and put it in a deathbed and said that their grandmother was dying. <laughs> and the whole family collected <laughs> round this, this dying grandmother. 
And when the Germans burst in, they turned around and said, you know, because it was a more gentlemanly kind of war, for shame, you know, what are you doing? This, our grandmother is dying, oh, have you no shame? And the Germans were mortified and backed out, and um, they got to keep the pig. So, but I, I, those are the kind of details that I think, if you read a lot of factual stuff, it actually brings your book alive, even if you alter the... The, the thing, it, it, I, I don't think you can write a historical book without doing loads and loads of reading. Poor grandma. That's all Poor I have grandma. to say about that. It's like, oh yeah, she's a convincing pig. Um, this seems like a really good place to leave it. Thank you so much, Jojo Moyes! <laughs>